If you don't put any strategy behind this, you're going to be floating around with a whole bunch of different disparate systems and none of them talk to each other and you almost end up with more work than you would have if you had actually laid out a strategy. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading account payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Greetings, everyone. My name is Ben Murray, the SaaS CFO, and thank you for joining us today on the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. Again, my name is Ben Murray. I've been in finance and accounting for 25 years, blogging about all things SaaS at the SaaScFO.com, and I'm excited to introduce Dan Harmon of iFi.com. Dan, take a moment to, to introduce yourself. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to be part of your podcast. Um, I'm the CFO and COO of iFi. Uh, I run finance, HR, uh, sales and operations, which for us is deployments. Um, I joined the company about a year and a half ago and uh, started to uh, help with fundraising and then sort of inherited the sales and deployments uh, part of it in the absence of having an actual COO. Um, companies focused on building autonomous retail platform. Uh, we leverage computer vision to automate uh, processes inside the physical retail environment, um, like checkout. Um, and we've been around for about five years. We've got a few competitors in the space. Um, uh, the most uh, sort of notable is Amazon Go or Standard Cognition and Trigo Vision. Um, and you can visit uh, some of our live stores here in the Bay Area. Uh, we've got a design partner with Loop. Uh, they've got a store over in Union City. Um, and we've got other really exciting uh, retailers on the platform like Aldi and Carrefour and Dollar General. Um, and we're mainly focused on rolling out uh, uh, stores in the U.S. and Europe. All right. Great. Well, welcome again. And I was checking out your landing page and I was a bit memorized by that video. It was pretty amazing about walking through the store and, and just the cameras and the AI picking up on that. So that was pretty cool. So we'll start with some finance questions that you know finance leaders are going to be very interested in to learn a little bit more about your business and where you're at. So as far as kind of the stage of your business, revenue size, or even fundraising stage, can you tell me a little bit more about what stage uh, are you in with with iFi, yeah, iFi uh, is actually out fundraising right now. We're um, building our Series B. Uh, 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 we're in the market actively raising right now. Um, in terms of the team structure uh, and team size, um, our first internal hire uh, was very recent. Um, I hired a controller uh, to sort of start building out uh, the team. Uh, we've uh, outsourced traditionally all of the finance um, and accounting function to a local firm. Uh, we do have a subsidiary in China uh, with two people focused on uh, accounting and finance for that organization. Mm -hmm. um, the outside firm has about three dedicated resources, uh, two domestic that are focused on sort of uh, higher level uh, components. So revenue and collections, there's a consolidation effort. 
uh, and then really our cash forecasting uh, process uh, and the overall kind of close process is generated out of the local folks. Um, and they're supported by um, a gentleman in uh, India who is uh, principally responsible for all of the GL uh, management um, and our uh, processing of payroll uh, as well as sort of any AP or expense work that we get done. Okay, really interesting because you see that software companies as you're starting out and scaling it's outsourcing the accounting and bookkeeping. So you have a controller that oversees then the outsourced accounting. Is that right? Yeah, yeah and our accounting function um, in the last sort of uh, six months has just become uh, a little bit more complex. We've added um, a subsidiary in Europe as well. Uh, we've started to add um, uh, billing uh, to uh, on a regular basis to our customers now that we're actually shipping product and, and delivering the platform into a live environment. Um, and so it just got to be a little bit too much uh, to manage with the outside firm from a cost perspective. And um, as we look down the road, um, we know that there's certain things and components to uh, the finance and accounting uh just environment in general that we want to manage closely internally um, without sort of bearing the brunt of uh, the cost overhead of actually having an outsource uh, firm do it for us. Um, and then there's just certain things that we want to control ourselves um, on a day-to-day -day basis that we think is more efficient by having a, a controller in-house. Whether or not she decides to build uh, the full team in-house um, or continue to rely on external source uh, externally sourced help, that will be something that I think we decide together over the course of the next six months. Again, she mm -hmm. just started. So, um, you know, we'll see. We're, we're kicking off our first audit. Um, we're going through some, you know, typical growing pains. And I think it'll end up being a balance. Um, but there's some stuff that I think will be better controlled by having it in-house and somewhere where I can touch it on a daily basis. Um, and it just gets a different level of care when it's done in-house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you're seeing this more, right? You know, using a balance between internal resources, external, and then maybe there's some trigger points, right? Where external doesn't make any sense, cost or the complexity, be the scale yeah. of your business where it's like, hey, now we bring everything in-house. We have more yeah. quality assurance, quality control uh, over the process. Yeah, but it's, it, and I totally agree with you. I think the the nice part too is I think the model for taking some of that repetitive work that doesn't require sort of hands-on management, um, as long as the control environment is there uh, mm -hmm. to ensure you're still accurate and, and not sort of um, making a lot of mistakes, that stuff still can really effectively and affordably go um, outside of our cost structure into lower cost environments. And again, we're Silicon Valley based, so hiring an accountant here in the Bay Area versus hiring somebody in, I don't know, Texas or Tennessee yep. or Mexico or India is very different. So you can start to see different components as long as you have a good handle on it internally, be controlled externally and still get the same performance out of the team for much lower cost. Right. Absolutely. And that's a great point for finance leaders out there, right? That balance, if you still have external resources, then strong internal internal controls over your process, over login access, et cetera, that you can keep that balance and still utilize external resources as you scale. So really interesting. And so the next thing, right, 
is really important uh, and really interesting is reporting to our board, reporting to our executive management and that keens what we're reporting, confidence in those numbers and data quality. So can you tell me a little bit about your your board reporting cadence? How often does this happen? Are you doing this monthly, quarterly, both? And then, you know, what numbers are important? What numbers are are is your board looking at looking yep. at that's really important uh to to kind of gauge the the progress of your business? Yeah, so we've um when I started, we were sort of reporting kind of loosely on a quarterly basis with respect to the finances of the company. And that was because we were sort of meeting kind of every week um, with the board on Mm -hmm. core strategic and customer development items. And so they would get a, they had sort of just a natural understanding of what was going on with the business. Um, I formalized a monthly close process um, and was able to sort of get in front of them uh, real numbers uh, on a monthly basis. So we have a, a, a five day close um, and we meet with the board mid-month, um, and they get a, uh, a management reporting package, which basically includes a snapshot of where our bookings are, um, what MRR looks like. Uh, we, um, we, de- we deploy a store. That's how we uh, get live at the platform. So we talk about deployments. Um, and then we focus a lot on cash, um, and the biggest driver of cash for us is headcount. Uh, and so those are followed up. Those metrics, key metrics are followed up by um, typical financial statements. Mm-hmm. We do a, a departmental breakdown of the P&L um, and shoot them a balance sheet and cash flow statement. Um, but really, it's the KPIs that they look at um, around sort of bookings, uh, deployments uh, and where we are from a cash standpoint. And the cash is really about uh, burn and runway, um, as well as any potential collections issues, uh, which we don't have a lot. But mm-hmm. um, you know, we again, th- those are the core metrics, and I think that uh, translates into a significantly more formal um, and deeper dive on a quarterly basis out to more than just the board. Um, our Series A uh, investors, the two leads, sit on the board, um, but we have about a dozen investors uh, that, on a quarterly basis, are getting a more robust version of that monthly package. Um, mm-hmm. And you know it. I make myself available for follow-up calls um, to anyone in the group, either the individual board members who we have a fairly uh, casual relationship, so they are able to call with any questions anytime. Um, And then the broader distribution to the um, core shareholders. uh, You know, I I probably take two phone calls a quarter um, from one or two of of, uh, the portfolio uh, analysts that are tracking the investment really closely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they ask all sorts of random questions like, you know, what's the increase of uh, headcount? What's it driven towards? Um, and they're always, always focused on cash. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So, really, it sounds like really good fundamental financial management, reporting to your board, bookings, MRR, cash forecast, your financials. And sometimes it's too early on to really dive into certain SAS metrics. Are you looking at any specific metrics as part of that, any SAS metrics, or is it really just good financial management here in the beginning? To be honest, it's more about financial management than it is Mm -hmm. about true SAS metrics. So uh, churn for us isn't necessarily something that we um, were even tracking because our client base is so small um, and we just haven't lost any clients. knock on wood. 
Um, you know, we don't look at LTV right now, again, because uh, we're very early in the development. Um, uh, CAC is something that we are monitoring, but if you were to analyze our CAC ratio right now, it would be in the, you know, north of 10. And of course, we're trying to spend more, but as a startup, mm -hmm. you're also uh, spending more on R&D than you would be on, on marketing. And most of the stuff that we're, we're successful in from a client acquisition standpoint is really around uh, inbound leads. Um, so it's not a relevant metric for us yet, although we know it will get to one. Um, I think for core SaaS metrics, we do have a long-term model where we have assumptions built in um, to really start looking at, um, you know, basic and core SaaS metrics because the business, um, it, it does have multiple lines, um, but the core business uh, proposition is basically to build out the, the platform uh, revenue. Um, we have a service line revenue and we also have the deployment side of the house that we uh, earn revenue on, but the value of the business is really around the recurring nature of the platform. Um, so we, we think about them, but to date, they aren't sort of core like they would be uh, if we had 10,000 stores deployed. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's a little bit different from a management perspective. Right. Because and when I work with SaaS founders and finance teams, usually that's the question, when should I start measuring? And usually, right, you need enough data to make it meaningful yeah. and not volatile metrics that are bouncing up and down and really you can't make any decisions with those. So, yeah, that that makes yeah. absolute, absolute I, sense. It's a great question, too, because, you know, for me to talk about uh, cohort growth or cohort churn is almost meaningless, but I'm going to be... Uh, I'm going to be hurting for that information later on if I don't start tracking it now, right? Like, you know, there's a, there's tracking it and there's sort of living by it. Um, I still think it's critical that we start tracking it because two years from now, I know what the question is going to be. It's going to be, mm -hmm. well, how does this cohort in 2023 compare to the first cohorts that you were getting in 2021? And boy, if you don't have that data, you're going to be spinning your wheels in 2023 trying to figure out just how well the customers that you acquired two years ago performed. And so I'd really, um, I'm glad we're tracking it. I'm a little bummed nobody's looking at it. I'm a little bummed that it's all volatile right now, but mm -hmm. I totally understand that. And I can't wait to share that data against full uh, baked and mature cohorts in two years so that we actually have sort of this progression that we can actually share and, sh and show off. And that is a fantastic pro tip right there, right? You may not be using those metrics yet, but building that foundation of data tracking reporting systems. So when you're ready to use those metrics, right? And that's always the case. It's like start tracking now. You may not be calculating those metrics, but you'll be glad you did a year from now, two years from now that you have that historical data that now, yeah, that's the data that you need to really ma manage your business and pro be proactive. So fantastic point there, uh, which is a great segue into our next question. Key part of data and data quality is tech stack. And this is really popular right now, finance and accounting tech stack, right? There's so much data trapped in, in software businesses now that we need to unlock to make proactive decisions with and you know to really power our financial operations so tell me a little bit about your your current finance and accounting tech stack <laughs> i uh i don't know if you saw the the notes as we were <laughs> sort of getting ready for the interview but um i, I my first note was uh lol yep <laughs> i mean um we don't have a robust finance tech stack um 
we're using QuickBooks, um, and that's not a ding on QuickBooks. Mm -hmm. uh, QuickBooks is a phenomenal platform for a phenomenally affordable price um, for what it can do. Um, I think the things that are uh, sort of missing from QuickBooks um, as it relates to sort of a SaaS business um, are sort of things like cohort analysis and mm -hmm. churn and um, some of the, the critical analysis being done offline. Um, so we leverage uh, Excel a ton. Um, we're in a PEO, so Trinet's in our tech mm -hmm. stack. Um, we do have Bamboo HR uh, helping to manage headcount costs and tracking things like that. Um, but most of the reporting that we're getting for the business itself is coming off of our internal uh, reporting platform. Um, and so we don't have, uh, you know, we, we have uh, 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 a fairly robust data platform because of the business that we're mm -hmm. in. So it's not like we have this giant, uh, you know, finance focused uh, technology stack that we're, we're operating on top of um, our own stuff. Um, it's always a, it's always a fun discussion to be having with an engineer uh, co-founder um, talking about buying a piece of software because embedded in their DNA is we should just build it. Yep. Um, and We'll get there. Uh, you know, we'll probably upgrade from QuickBooks to uh, NetSuite or something a little bit more robust um, as we kind of graduate from our current stage into the next stage. Um, consolidation will become an issue with QuickBooks. That's really hard to do in QuickBooks, um, although not impossible. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it'll just kind of graduate away from QuickBooks. I think um, that will dictate sort of the next step of what kind of tools that we put in. Um, but from, you know, an expense management standpoint, Trinet, uh, does that for us. Um, and then we have a, um, we have a couple of other tools floating around, but nothing core to the actual, uh, finance world. Uh, most of that is done in Excel off of our internal reporting backdrop. Okay. Yeah. makes sense. Interesting. And I always tell teams, right. Just like dev has their product roadmap, finance leaders needs their product roadmap. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're, we're QuickBooks and then the modules we needed to implement or where does our general ledger go and, and the point solutions are, or where do we take our ERP system? So same thing forward looking, right? Because we're going to have the data, the metrics we need to track and have those right systems in place, which are so key. Yeah, so, I think I think for us, one of the, I mentioned it earlier, but we do sell uh, hardware and deployments as part of our core offering. Um, I think, uh, you know, we, we took an early stab at deploying Fishbowl uh, from a PO and product management standpoint. Um, and that is one of the core things on the controller's plate is to think through that ERP roadmap. I couldn't agree more that you need this, like, if you don't put any strategy behind this, you're going to be floating around with a whole bunch of different disparate systems and none of them talk to each other. And you almost end up with more work um, mm -hmm. uh, than you would have if you had actually laid out a strategy and said, yeah, maybe we should invest in NetSuite because over the course of the next two years, these 10 modules that fit into NetSuite will actually be driving a significant amount of performance into the team. Um, and, you know, again, like I said, that's a, that's something that we're thinking about. We're just not there yet. With yep. It. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. So let's let's get into a little more iFi specific here, because you have a software and hardware model, which is really interesting. Right. You think pure play SaaS, just recurring subscriptions, but you have both software subscriptions. Right. And hardware. So can you tell me how you 
financially manage these? Are these two different revenue streams, two different margins? So how do you look at that when you're looking at, say, your, your software P&L and managing those distinct, uh, almost product lines, obviously part of one platform? Yeah, uh, Ben, this is just a great question. I mean, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, we're fundraising. Um, and this has been uh, core to the storytelling alongside of the fundraise. As we pitch the business, um, we've had to really dig in our heels to explain uh, why our margins look like they do. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard pill to swallow to say you're a, a SaaS uh, company and then have, you know, break even uh, gross margin um, until you let the folks know why you have the gross margin you do and you carve out, um, we actually carve out three different business lines. Um, so we have the normal platform, mm -hmm. uh, which we call Oasis. So uh, that's one business line. And then we have a deployments business line and we have an other business line. Um, and we're targeting typical SaaS metrics around the uh, Oasis platform, which would be in the um, high 80s in terms of gross margin. Um, it is a platform. It We get the leverage out of the platform. Uh, we have very low uh, operating costs for the platform. Um, uh, and the more we deploy, the better off the mix of revenue in our P&L will show that you know 80 plus percent gross margins on the platform side. The deployments piece is actually a typical um, services type of revenue where we target sort of a 30% uh, percent margin. Um, it's people-based. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I think clients are very um, in tune with the cost structure associated with what they're paying for. And if you don't have, if you have a lot of margin embedded in it, it becomes harder to sell uh, that people-based uh, service. Um, and then the last piece is really our hardware um, component. Um, and we do a lot of projects um, where we basically bill at cost. Um, and so it's passed through. And so when you when you think about those three, right, we have a really high margin around uh, the recurring revenue base of the platform. Um, we have this um, moderate sort of people services based uh, business type margin uh, for the deployments. And then we have this basically pass through revenue uh, when it comes to hardware. Hardware is commoditized uh, in our world. We use no specialized hardware in our solution. So you can go to market and buy the same thing we're selling you. So it's almost impossible to charge a margin on that. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the shift that we project is that as we install more, um, we will have more on the platform side of the revenue versus the installation and deployments revenue, which will shift the mix in terms of margin and the profile will change drastically. Um, so it's one of those things where we, we uh, you know, the business has been a lot of project-based revenue at 30% from the start. Um, you know, we've partnered with companies like Walmart and 7-Eleven and these amazing companies, but the margin is very small. Um, there are indeed types projects. And now as we shift, we're kind of moving upstream from a revenue prof profile standpoint and shifting it out to that uh, really rich uh, margin that is platform based. But we're in growth. So we're still doing a ton of deployments and mm -hmm. still doing a ton of hardware side. Um, and so you just have to be clear with uh, particularly the investing uh, crowd, the, the board gets it because we talk so frequently, but the investing crowd needs to see that picture. Um, and it truly is a picture and a story. You can't just say my revenue is X and my gross margin is Y because that is 100% off balance with what, uh, what next year's revenue and, and gross margin will look like. And in fact, 
if we were to project lower margins next year, it would indicate that we're continuing to deploy, which given our projection for almost no or very little churn would mean that in three to four years from now, um, as that deployed base really is installed and billing, now you have a super rich uh, uh, gross margin profile that you're benefiting from the, the here and now. Um, so today's margin uh, should be low and it should be uh, forecasting really good health in the business down the path. It, yeah, it's yeah, different yeah. from a traditional SaaS, right? Traditional SaaS, you turn it on, you see the, you see the margin right away. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, right. So part of this, right, good accounting setup. So you can actually see, right, your overall gross margin, COGS versus OPEX, and then not just your overall margin, but margins by revenue stream. So you can understand, you know, for the CFOs out there to understand your financial profile, where that, where is that profile going? And then also, right, explaining that story to investors who don't know anything about your business. Uh, so you have all the detail, right? Because overall gross margin is one thing, but then there's so much at play there, depending on how many different distinct revenue streams that you have. So, and and yeah. we even go into it. Um, we even look at contribution margin by customer. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can, we can say to uh, anybody who's really digging in under the covers on what our margin looks like, we can say if, you know, if it's a design partner margin looks like this, and if it's an active customer margin looks like this, if it's a in deployments margin looks like this, and if it's a deployed store margin looks like that. Um, yeah. Until we started picking apart that puzzle, uh, even investors looked at us and said, what's going on with your margin? So, yep. so now we're, we're really in tune with that. Yep. So key thing, right? You've got to understand your margins, margins by revenue streams. So when I looked at your website and saw, hey, AI, ML type product, uh, you know, and this comes up a lot is, is how do you, the forecasting difficulty around hosting costs, compute power, architecture of your platform and for you, do you have, say, higher costs than normal, say, with an AI ML product that you have to think about that a little differently than pure play SaaS, where that's just one, you know, it, just a small component of COGS? Is that a bigger component of, you, of yours or, or how do you look around at that around your hosting and your architecture with an AI platform? Yeah, I think um, it, from iFi's standpoint, it's actually probably a lower uh, contribution to cost of goods sold. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because of our model. Um, we require so much GPU to process images and get the AI to sort of make decisions um, that we actually push uh, hardware on-prem. Um, and so we have an upfront pass-through cost on hardware, which uh, plays out down the path of actually um, having a more rich uh, gross margin for the platform itself. And it's because we've shifted a lot of compute that traditional AI companies are doing on behalf of their customers in the cloud and bearing that cost um, to making the customer actually buy the GPU and put it on-prem. I think that will change over time, um, but not until GPU in the cloud uh, as a cost component comes significantly down. Um, and right now, if you were to sort of line up the costs of uh, compute in the cloud, uh, storage is cheap, uh, CPU is cheap, um, GPU is ridiculously expensive. Um, mm -hmm. So much so that it's actually cheaper for us to actually deploy on-prem. Um, the service, long-term service model, the maintenance models, and even the power and, and cooling consumption model 
around uh, putting what we use from a compute perspective onto the onto the premise of the actual store. Um, the the cloud offering can't can't compete with it. So we still have a little bit of uh, modeling done in the cloud, um, but as a comparison point to other AI businesses, it's likely to be less, um, given that we actually push that cost uh, on prem and to the customer. Okay. All right. Yeah. Really interesting. So with an AI company. And maybe for those out there who you are not familiar with AI, and and when I think about kind of the specific roles within SaaS and software, uh, is an AI company, is it still just, hey, software engineers taking care of this? Or do you have any roles that are, are specific to this AI component that'd be different from uh, a company you know that that's just, say, selling an application that doesn't require that type of technology? Yeah, one of the, the hardest parts that we have right now um, is uh, we hire a lot of computer vision experts um, and engineers. Um, it's a uh, it's a relatively new field of study, um, and it is a uh, we are in competition with autonomous driving. We're in competition with any AR and VR company, um, and so from a engineering perspective. Um, AI and ML is sort of a big, broad umbrella, um, and we have to compete in there as well, but uh, we also compete on a computer vision um, uh, standpoint. It's a, it, I think it's driving some of our hiring practices. We've hired um, teams in uh, Europe, and we have a, a, a good team in China as well. Um, and the field of study, again, is super competitive with a lot of really um, uh, uh, hot markets, right? I mean, autonomous driving uh, has backings of, of huge companies um, that can outpay any startup in the Valley. Uh, that's always fun to, to get a competitive job offer from, a, uh, you know, oh, I've got a job offer from Waymo. <laughs> Great, mm -hmm. what is it? And you're like, you should take that. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, the hiring's been good so far. I think, uh, again, knock on wood, I don't want to jinx myself, but um, uh, so far so good. But computer vision seems to be uh, sort of of all of the things that we are highly specialized in. That's the, the biggest piece of the AI and ML team. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. So as we wrap up here and thinking about the finance function, I noticed in your profile that you had rebuilt a finance function. So for those upcoming finance leaders out there, or for those who kind of find themselves in a rebuilding scenario of the finance and accounting function, briefly, like what three areas did you focus on and would you focus on to rebuild the finance function? Yeah, it's... um. It's it's generally focused around um, isolating the reporting requirements of the business and ensuring that the people that you're putting into place can accomplish that goal. Um, and I think there's commodity components of finance and accounting um, that can be done by almost anyone in this you know in a spectrum of broad offerings, internal, external, nearshore, onshore, offshore. Um, but if you don't understand sort of the the needs or the uh, the needs of the business from a reporting perspective to drive where those things are happening, um, you could misfire. And I think uh, one of the things that I've I've always sort of focused on as uh, being 
either in the CFO chair or being um, fortunate enough to having to get to build the team as opposed to be a member of the team is that the, the actual leader of the team is sort of critical. I, I don't like building up and then putting a leader in. I'd rather put a leader in and find somebody, uh, and this might be a little bit of a reflection on my um, sort of how I manage too, is I'd rather have them dig up uh, all the dead bodies and figure out like how to fix. And I'd rather hire the leader and let them build the team as opposed to like, because I want them to experience just exactly what needs to be built. Um, so I've always hired a controller first and then supported her with, um, building out around them. Um, and I think it's really important that the person, you know, and mostly I've gone through some of the dirty work myself and sort of found out what is really wrong and why do you need to rebuild a team? Like in a typical startup, accounting is probably the last thing on a, on a, yep. on a founder's mind. Um, and so you have to sort of get into their head, figure out what is most important to how they manage the business, bring with you what you know is most important to managing the business. Um, my founders didn't know what MRR was. Um, they didn't know what gross margin was. Um, it's not their fault. I mean, they're literally geniuses. Um, they just, why would they know that? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's my job, I think, to sort of take what is important to them, mix it up with what's important to managing the business um, past the sort of founder stage and into thinking about series B and series C. And then you put the controller in place that you know will tackle those biggest issues that you have. Um, and then the, the next piece uh, is the finance piece, right? I still think that at a startup level, the CFO should be running finance um, and the controller should do, be doing the accounting. Um, storytelling around the numbers is mission critical in a startup. The finance component for me has always been last and secondary to hiring a good set of accounting because I do the finance. I put the model together. I manage the model. I manage the board. And I don't want to get disconnected from that too early. We're not big enough for me to be disconnected from that. It needs mm -hmm. to come from me because, you know, if there's a problem, the buck still stops with me and we can't afford a giant FP&A crew. I'd rather have a a really good accounting base with great data because then the storytelling is easy. Mm -hmm. um, so right. figure out what's wrong yourself, um, you know, build the story and then hire the right person to, to build this, to help build the data around it and then go off and grow around them. Um, yep. Yeah. Great, great insight, right? Uh, having that leader who has the vision and who then executes on that. So, one last question here to wrap up. So if you had to give one piece of advice to finance leaders who want to be successful, what would it be? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I think, you know, in short, I would say you need to be prepared and knowledgeable about everything impacting cash. Um, and again, um, the frame of reference here is around, um, you know, a series uh, probably pre-B uh, um, uh, company. And so cash still is king. So no matter what you're doing um, or how you're actually managing the books, I don't think um, generally your board and your, your founders or your CEO, they aren't interested in the process that it took for you to get to the answer, but you have to have the answers around what's going on with cash, what your burn and runway is. Um, 
you need to be focused on uh, those things principally and everything else is a backdrop to that. Um, and so um, very rarely in my experience are, uh, are CEOs at startups able to focus longer than sort of a month or two out. Um, but you still need to have a model that says, uh, this is what cash looks like six months out and 12 months out. And you still need to actually be able to answer the question about some crazy idea that comes up, what it's going to do to cash. And you need to be able to tell that story in a way that the CEO or the co-founding team can actually process it. You can't just say you're going to be out of cash in 12 months. You have to give them the opportunity to sort of understand the impact of their decision. And it all has to be focused on cash if you do not have a profitable business um, that is sort of mature, which is not what a startup is. Mm-hmm. So you you kind of always have to be thinking about, hey, you know what? That's a great idea. Um, here's some of the implications to that idea. And I'm thinking about, you know, six to 12 months out. Um, it also is critical to have that story when you're going to the board and you're starting to talk about fundraising, um, which for a lot of startups is a constant thing. Um, if you don't understand what your burn rate is and how you can manipulate that burn by making different business decisions, then fundraising is, you know, it's, it's kind of, it, it's not really fully baked. It's a, it's a means to an end. It's not really like a, um, it's not effective, right? Mm-hmm. You, you haven't really raised money for a purpose. You've just raised money. And so what? You know, at some point, the people you're raising money for are going to catch on to that. Um, mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to do it. Um, but if you have a purpose for the money, then you can continue to go out and do it. Yeah. So not surprising, right, that cash is always on the mind of a CFO, even when you have good cash balances or if you're building cash balances or fundraising, right? It's funny how, or not funny, it, it always revolves around cash as king, right? And you really learn that in in kind of those sparse cash times. So yeah. They had really appreciate it. I mean, the amazing insights and pro tips there from your personal experience in building finance teams, raising funds to grow your software company. So, so thank you for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the SAS CFO and my blog, you can check out the sascfo.com. And if you'd like to learn more about iFi, you can check out AIFI.com. And again, Dan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.